John Ortberg had this fascinating observation. He said that Jesus is, uh, no one knows what he looks like, and he's the most recognizable person in the world. You think about that. That almost anybody could recognize some kind of usually lame portrait of Jesus. And when none of us really know what he looks like. They didn't have iPhones back then. Um, and we, we, the, our world kind of suffers from some of the bad art of our conceptions of Jesus. This is a picture that I found. If you just Google the word Jesus and look at images, it's, it's horrific. Uh, this is a, you know, a common, apparently Jesus was uh, a 1970s white pacifist hippie. Um, it's hard to imagine that that was the Jesus who made a whip and cleared the temple. All right. This is my favorite one. Um, I wondered if I could show it, but it's a picture of Jesus. It's grainy, but it's, he's got a tattoo, and instead of saying mom, it says father. I thought that was hilarious. Um, but, you know, it's, it's funny. We see a lot of uh, pictures of who Jesus is, and, and some of them aren't um, really that accurate. What I'd like to do today is to paint for you a picture of Jesus as a worker, because uh, he worked really hard, and, um, and he, he brings dignity to a lot of different forms of work just by his example. In this series of talking about what it means to work and rest, we spend 100% of our time doing one of those two things. We live in this constant cycle of work and rest. It's one of the most important things we can give our attention to. My hope is that today you'll be inspired and convicted by Jesus' pattern, by some of the things Jesus says, by some of the things Jesus does. Um, I, I think two things will happen um, at the end of today. The first is um, I'm, there's at least three real-time lessons you can pull away from the passage we're going to read. And I'm, I want to encourage you to be thinking through, what can I learn today in my job by how Jesus works? The second is I think your heart should be moved to worship. I think anytime we look at Jesus, if, if our heart isn't moved towards worship, we're probably not looking at Jesus or there's something in the way. And so I, I'm hoping that that will be what happens. If you have a Bible, let's go to Luke chapter 4, page 859, if you want to use one of the Bibles around you or feel free to pull it up on a device. I'll be in the ESV translation, also known as the Elect Standard Version. It was a Presbyterian joke. You'll get it tomorrow. Luke chapter 4. Um, what is interesting to know, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it's one of those things that is worth thinking about later, is um, we see this parallel pattern in Matthew's gospel as well as Luke's gospel, is in Luke 3, Jesus is baptized. There's an incredible moment of the Father speaking love over his Son. Um, the Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. We see essentially the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit at the baptism. John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wonderful moment. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4 begins that Jesus is full of the Spirit and is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days where he fights Diablo himself, goes through a series of temptations, and comes out um, with victory um, it says, I think in verse 13, in the devil, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus is not depleted from this trial. He's actually strengthened um, with more of the power of the Spirit. And so where we're going to start is on the heels of that, where Jesus begins his public ministry, presumably at the age of 30. 
verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report or a rumor or a commotion about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. This is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to live my best life now, to have a great home and a great neighborhood, to make lots of money, to eat and drink wherever I want, to afford West Elm furniture, and to be able to go on exotic vacations where I can take Instagram pictures and make everyone jealous. That's why the Spirit has anointed him. It's not why the Spirit of the Sovereign. Some of you are like, what translation is that? I need to get this Presbyterian Bible. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord. I love the Presbyterians. I, I love them. Is upon me because he has anointed me to do some things. To one, proclaim good news to the poor. Two, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives or the slaves. Three, the recovery of sight to the blind. Four, to set at liberty all who are oppressed. Five, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So much in there. Notice that the spirit of the sovereign Lord comes upon Jesus not to make his life better, but to make other people's lives better, to love his neighbor. That'll preach. We have such an individualized ver uh, perversion of work that we primarily see our job as a way to provide for our family. And while God does provide daily bread, that is not the, the sole reason why he calls us to work and make a living in this world. It should be for the betterment of our neighbor, not so that we can go to Fiji. Although I would love to go to Fiji. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down, which was a Jewish way of saying he's about to teach. When I'm about to teach, I stand up and their day he sits down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? No, he's not. Have you ever thought about that? Here's the problem with the text. They thought they knew everything about him. This is his hometown synagogue. It'd be like if, um, you know, if Emma grew up in this church and then at, you know, age 30, she comes back and starts teaching and we were like, oh, we know Emma. We've seen her since she was six, you know. The people in Nazareth thought they knew everything about Jesus. They knew nothing. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah, basically telling them, I am the Messiah. Now is the time. All Israel has been waiting for it. The rubber has hit the road. And they say, 
in other translations. Isn't this the carpenter's son? It's actually a derogatory term. No, he's not Joseph's son. And watch how things change. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came in over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, and there were many lepers in Israel. You see the compare and contrast. Many lepers in Israel a woman who's a widow in the foreign country. None of them were cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. He's basically challenging their social, cultural, and racial preconceptions on who God loves. I thought that was just in 2019. They're like, we love this message of the Messiah, and he already knows what's in their heart. They think they know everything about him, and he basically says, hey, the people who God's coming to save is greater than your culture, than my culture. Now, here's what's fascinating. Here's where the story turns. When they heard these things, remember um, uh, verse uh, what, 22, they hear the things he's saying, and they marvel at the gracious words that are coming out of their, his mouth. Well, here's the, it's different. In verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff or, or to kill him and then stone him eventually. And verse 30 is hilarious to me. I'd love to see an artist paint this. But passing through their midst, he went away. Just so great. But the whole, like he confronts all in the synagogue on their misconceptions about who God is and who the Messiah is and how the Messiah is going to come and what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And he's describing his work. They go, isn't this Joseph's son? He confronts them on that, yada, yada. Then they say, let's take, we're going to kill you, take you out to the brow of the cliff. And then he just slips through them like he's Houdini. It's really fascinating. There's a couple of, there's three things really that I want to point out to here. Um, the first thing is it is really striking to consider where Jesus worked. And I think Jesus' example of working in Galilee and working in Nazareth should have real-time effects on us and some of our decision-making. We see this in verses 14 and 16, these two places that Luke specifically says, after this incredible moment of the baptism, after being tested for 40 days in the wilderness, he doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to Judea. He goes to Galilee. He lives in a place called Nazareth. Now, Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. That was the kind of the way you would speak of Galilee. It was considered a place of darkness, a land in the shadow of death, because it was very far from the influence of the religious Jerusalem. It was very far from the influence of Judaism. And a lot of Jews didn't live in Galilee. 
a lot of Gentiles or non-Jew. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. This place was filled with people who were very, very far from God for his promises. And this is where Jesus went first when he was filled with the power of the Spirit. Also, Nazareth, it mentions that he goes to his hometown in Nazareth. Now, you and I don't have any um, association with Nazareth. Some of you, has anyone been to Nazareth? I know there's like a couple of you. All right, so four of you have been to Nazareth. But most of us haven't been to Nazareth. So we don't really know. Is Nazareth the bad place? Like, what's so bad about Nazareth? But if you go to John's gospel in chapter 1, Nathaniel, who knows Nazareth, when Jesus is told um, about to him, I think Philip brings Jesus to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, who knows Nazareth, says, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, it's like us from the city saying, can anything good come from Bandera? No. <laughs> Just kidding. One time I was, when I first moved to San Antonio, I was wearing like skinny jeans and Converse and a black t-shirt and um, I looked like a like guy from the Genius Bar at Apple, basically. And I went to Bandera, and I went to a restaurant, and everyone there was wearing cowboy boots and like Levi's and a hat. And, and I had never felt so out of place in my life. And they thought I was this, like, who is the city slicker coming in to get our barbecue? And so, yeah, nothing good can come from Bandera. Uh, it'd, be like, um, it'd be like, we have a lot of Aggies in our church, Right? Be like, saying, can anything good come from Austin if you went to College Station? Or, you know, my family's from Boston, so my dad's like, nothing good can come from New York because they're a big Red Sox fan. You know, you get this, you know, we all have these biases of, of certain places based on our loyalties and allegiance, and Nazareth was one of these places. I want to show you just a quick map that is fascinating if you're not familiar with the maps in your Bible. <laughs> um, down on the bottom, um, you see Judea, and this is the area. You see Bethlehem, if you can read this. Sorry, the print's small. But right there is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital, the epicenter of religious thought and practice. People would pilgrimage up to the holy city. Then you see right above it the area of Samaria. People would actually, to get to Galilee, they'd go outside of the country into Perea just to get around Samaria, which in John, I think, 4, Jesus decides just to take the short way and go through Samaria. And that's where the the account of the Samaritan woman happens. But if you look north of Samaria, by the lake, the Sea of Galilee, you see that blue area, that's Galilee. And right in there is Nazareth. They mentioned Capernaum, which is north on the lake there, Bethsaida, all those areas. So you can see just how far Jesus' hometown of Nazareth is, at the top of the screen there, to the capital of the religious epicenter of the world, Jerusalem. Now here is the incredible uh, takeaway that just strikes me. Philippians 2, this great prose on how Jesus didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but in humility, he took on the form of man. He became obedient to death, even the death on the cross, right? All that. Jesus does not commute from heaven to Jerusalem. He also doesn't commute from heaven to Nazareth. He takes up residence in, not Jerusalem, Nazareth. We call this the incarnation. Uh, do you like Mexican food? Carne is what? Meat, right? So when we, even when we talk about the incarnation, right? We're talking about that God took on meat and bones and lived in Nazareth, not Jerusalem. That's like the wonder and the mystery that God would spend uh, 30 years of his life in a place where Nathaniel goes, can anything good come from that place? This is where Jesus was formed. 
Now, this is kind of fascinating. Um, We know that Joseph was a carpenter, a builder. We know Jesus is the firstborn of Mary. And we know somewhere after this, we never hear of Joseph again, and it's quite believed that he dies somewhere in this area. We see this when Jesus is on the cross. What's one of the last things Jesus does? He's talking to John, and he says, John, here's your mother, Mom, Mary, here's your son, and he is passing on the firstborn responsibility to John, which is a whole other thing, is he has four other brothers. We get at least four names of his brothers. And then it says also in the Gospels that he has sisters, plural. We don't know their names, but we know at least that there's two. So Jesus, at the very minimum, is the, the oldest of at least seven kids. He's the oldest, four brothers, at least two sisters. And when Joseph died, it would have been his responsibility to care for the family, to care for Mary. What's Mary now that Joseph's dead? A widow. She's got at least six other children besides Jesus. What are they now called? Orphans, they're fatherless. It's fascinating that when Jesus, at his baptism, the father says, says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased, but he hasn't done any public ministry yet. What has he done? For 30 years, he has worked hard in a place called Nazareth, being a builder, keeping a roof over the widow's head, Mary, keeping food on the table for the orphans, his brothers and sisters. Where do you think James, his brother, got the idea in James chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, pure religion that is undefiled in the sight of God is looking after widows and orphans in their affliction while keeping yourself unstained from the world. Where would James have gotten that idea? Unless he saw big brother Jesus honoring God, worshiping God by working hard, caring for Mary, the widow, caring for brothers and sisters, the orphans, in their affliction while keeping himself unstained from the world. Fascinating, James 1.27. Not even in the notes. Glory to God. That's wonderful, right? So, Nazareth. This is where God chose to take up his work. So here's the question. Where's your Nazareth? Where's God called you to live in Nazareth? Now it's different from everybody. But here's the thing. Your Nazareth is probably socially uncomfortable and spiritually uncomfortable. That's probably your Nazareth. And that might be worth digging into alone right there, is, Lord, the place that I'm working, the place that I'm playing in, the places that I eat, the places that I live, the places where I choose to do my life, is this the Nazareth God's called me to? When, when Shari and I were moving down here, we, we, we looked in a lot of different places, and there was one place in the city that people kept telling us, you should look in Dignity Hill, and we were like, no, thank you. <laughs> we'd rather not. It's a gamble. It's kind of rough still. And a lot of people in our church were moving in there and buying houses, and now it's a hot place to live. But, you know, years ago it wasn't. And um, I was at a church conference, and I heard a church planner who was planting a church in Compton. And he was talking about his, like the daily, the the people who show up at their door um, with things like, my kid was just killed in a drive-by last night, or 
things like that. And like they're planting this church in Compton. And he was just talking about how hard it was. Um, he's an African-American man doing this in, in Compton. And he was just, just talking about how, how hard of a place it was to plant a church in Compton. And then someone asked him, well, why don't you just go somewhere else where it's easier? And he says, because it's my Nazareth. It's like where I got the idea from. And I remember thinking, oh, God, where's my Nazareth? You know, maybe I should be praying about not, you know, where's the best schools, although that's something to think about. But Lord, where's the Nazareth you've called Shari and I live in? And immediately, in my mind, pops Dignity Hill. And I was like, oh, good luck pulling this over on Shari. Like, there's no way it's going to happen. Uh, someone would drop, when I got back from the trip, uh, came back from the airport, someone dropped me off. She didn't come pick me up. And I walked in and walked in our house with my luggage in my hand and Shari's sitting in our like, gray wingback chair on Trulia. And I said, hey, honey, what are you doing? She goes, I'm looking up uh, empty lots. And I said, oh, where? And she says, Dignity Hill. And I was like, all right, that's our Nazareth, you know? The Lord spoke to her, and the Lord spoke to me at the same time and said, we know this area is rough, but this is where he wants you. Now, not everyone's called to go into rough, rough, rough spots, and even you know, some of you like, Dignity Hill, that's not rough. Some of you it is. But it's a risky. We hear gunshots regularly. A couple months ago, we woke up at four in the morning. There was 15 gun, uh, gunshots happened across the street. The, the house across the street from us got hit up from the back and the front at the same time. They made someone mad. It's on the news. And we're like, and our neighbors the next day put their house on the market. We're out of here. And we prayed, Lord, is this, and we, this is your Nazareth. And I'm not about gunshots, and we got two small kids, and I'm as scared as anybody. But what we've come to is knowing the risk of raising our kids outside of God's will is greater than raising our kids inside of God's will. And that's where God... And so, so for you, it's different. Not, God's not calling everyone to go live in a neighborhood where there's drive-bys. Maybe your neighborhood is like super safe. But I guarantee you the inside lives of people, and so... I mean, there's just other problems. You know, it could be affairs or drugs or alcohol abuse or, or whatever. It could be lots of things. Just the neighborhood, the geography doesn't necessarily matter as much as where is the uncomfortable spiritual and social place that God's called you to be a light? Because you know where light shines best? In darkness. Light shines best in darkness. You've heard me say that a lot. So that might be one thing to do. Second, the work that Jesus gave himself to there's two clues in here, one in verse 15, one in verse 22. It says that he taught in their synagogues. Verse 22, also they say, is this not Joseph's son? Other translations say, is this not the carpenter's son? The first thing, it's fascinating that God comes to be a teacher. This is the power of ideas. This is what we looked at last week where the serpent comes to Eve and how does the serpent um, attack humanity with an idea about God. Did God really say do that? That's how the enemy comes. How does, G, how does God come? As a teacher. Fascinating. But he's not just a teacher. He's also what we would call a tecton. The word, if you ever read in the scriptures or you hear Jesus was a carpenter, the Greek word for that is tecton. And we have these images of carpenter as, you know, some hipster guy with a, 
with a wood plane and like a chisel and he's doing like a rocking chair or something. We think that Jesus really loved wood shavings and, and hand tools and stuff. And, and, and maybe he did um, do some of that. But if you've been to the Holy Land, you know that the common building material in the Holy Land is not wood, it's stone. Jesus, a tecton in that day, was more like a stonemason or a general contractor. Think of some of the stories Jesus tells in the Sermon on the Mount. The one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Where would Jesus have gotten that image from? He says to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Uh, These fishermen change out uh, uh, the language of fish and catching, and they pick up his language of building in the New Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I think we've shared a couple weeks ago one of the scriptures, I think it's in... Uh, Colossians, you are God's building. You know, we have these building analogies in the scriptures because Jesus was more of a stonemason and less of a uh, you know, middle ages carpenter. That is where the King James puts it and makes sense. So he was both a tecton and a teacher. He was both someone who worked with his hands, presumably for 30 years. And he also was someone who worked with his mind. He was a teacher. Now in our day, we get this messed up. Because we, we, we lift up people who work with their heads over people who work with their hands. We pay people who work with their heads generally more than we pay people who work with their hands. We even say, oh, that's white collar versus blue collar. That's the knowledge class. That's the working class. And, our, and our, the way our culture distorts the view of labor and work is so unlike the kingdom. Is that our culture tries to derive significance from the type of work you do. What we see Jesus do, coming as a tecton, caring for Mary and, and the orphans for 30 years, also coming as a teacher, is that he brings dignity to all those forms of work. If you were at a party and you met a plumber and a physician who does heart surgery or brain surgery, who do you think is smarter? Who do you think lives in the better house? Who do you think has access to better health care? Who do you think has nicer vacations, the plumber or the physician? It's because this is how distorted our world comes with valuing these the, the different pr- um, professions. Uh, years ago, um, I was discipling a young man named Johnny, and he grew up on the west side, on Zarz- off of Zarzamora. He was, he was Hispanic. And um, he w- went through the plumber apprenticeship, and he got his dream job. UTSA hired him as one of their, like, 200 plumbers, right? And he got this brand new, like, truck with all the stuff in it, and it was amazing. I mean, he had, like, a nice uniform and good working conditions, and he was just over the moon that he got to work at UTSA. And he would often tell pe- people would f- see on his shirt, UTSA employee, and they would assume that he was a professor. And then when they asked him, like, what do you do? And he said, I'm a plumber. He would notice how their faces were like, oh. One day he was at my house and we were doing some discipleship work and we were talk, catching up. He was talking about how much, um, what he did that week. And I said, we're talking about it. And he pulls out his phone and he took a picture and uh, he was so proud of the work he did. I'm not even sure what it was, but it was this entire wall full of plumbing where it was like a manifold of sorts where all the pipes were coming in and exchanging and going places and probably sewage was going through them. Um, but the way he had, installed it on the wall, he had taken a tape measure and found the center line. And then he had um, installed like the plywood on 
the wall, like level and centered in an appropriate mass as if it were a canvas in a museum. And all the, he didn't just cut the fittings, he measured them all out exactly, and there was this rhythm and flow to the manifold. And looking at it, I, I grabbed the phone, I was like, this is beautiful. It looked like an art installation, seeing all the, all the form and the function, and that it was also not just functional, but the form was beautiful, and he had taken his time to make sure that this thing was beautiful to people who walked in and saw it in a closet. And I'm like gushing, because I'm a graphic artist, and I, could, I, can, I see all this immediately, and he gets embarrassed. And I notice, and we're talking about it, and he just, he says to me, he's like, white people don't talk like this about my work to me. And my, that was the day my eyes were open. It's like, oh my, and he was, in, he shared with me, he was embarrassed to be a plumber. But at the same time, he was plumbing for Jesus. He did his job in such a way that it was beautiful and that it worked and that he was so proud of it. He took a picture of his work to remember the joy that he had in doing plumbing as one of 200 plumbers at UTSA. Grew up on Afazar Zamora. What I love about Jesus coming as a tecton and also as a teacher is he gets rid of all of that shame and guilt that often the blue collar holds because they're told, if you didn't get this degree or you don't make this amount of money, you're somehow less of a human than the physician or whatever. How might God be calling you to, maybe you're like my friend Johnny, and you're doing exactly what God's called you to do, but you haven't received the God-given dignity of that job because your view of it is shaped more by the world and capitalism and the economy than by what the maker of the mountain says about you in that function. And maybe some of you have a really high job and, and you need to learn how to honor the service people that are in your life. You know, if you, if you, if you, um, if you work somewhere and there's a doorman or a valet, how... How should you honor them and treat them with respect? If you go out to eat today, please treat your waiter or waitress with respect. Give, go above 20% tip. Show them the generosity because while you're hungry, they're serving you. They're doing something Jesus did, right? There's lots of ways that we can um, find ways to, to see the dignity in this. Last, oh, wait, this is great. Okay, this kind of, this kind of, what I love is that Jesus, often the people Jesus brought into his enterprise were not the people we'd pick. A tax collector who was a traitor. Uh, you know, James, uh, James and John uh, this, were like really zealous, wanted to burn down Samaria on one occasion. This is a, a letter. It's, it's, it's a joke. I was going to put it on the screen, but it's too small. I'll just read it to you. But it's like a, a fictitious human resources fax sent to Jesus as if Jesus had um, hired this HR firm to help him choose the disciples. This is hilarious. It says, uh, to Jesus, son of Joseph, address, Woodcrafter Carpenter Shop, Nazareth, zip code 25922, from Jordan Personnel Management Consultants, Jerusalem 26544. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have taken our battery of tests we have not only run the results through our computer, but have also arranged personal interviews for each of them 
with our expert psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. Don't even know what that means. The profiles of all the tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service and for your guidance, we make some general comments, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultations and comes without any additional fee. It is our staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the modern team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience with managerial ability and a proven track record. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given the fits of violent temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine others' morale. We feel it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical tendencies, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive profile. <laughs> One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of broad ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, the Jerusalem Human Resources Specialist. <laughs> God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. The third thing I want to point out is Jesus worked to bring blessing and freedom to others. We will dive into this more in the coming weeks. But once again, verses 18 and 19, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery to the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year the Lord's favor. For Jesus' work was not something that he did to make himself or his family rich. He did care for the widow and orphan, but he had a purpose that existed far beyond his own individualistic ways. That is the sketch I'd like you to see of Jesus. The good news in all this is that that's the type of God we have that he would not snub his nose at Nazareth, but that he would leave heaven and come to Nazareth, that he would live the life nobody could live, that he would look after the widow and orphan while keeping himself unstained from the world. His greatest work was even a work of sacrifice. He said, Father, if there's another way, I would like that way. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. I'd like for you to take this cup from me but if it's your will for me to drink this cup, I will do this work so that others will be benefited. And of course, his greatest work is when he stretched out his arms of love on the hardwood of the cross so that everyone who might come within his saving embrace might find life everlasting. It's the greatest work that anyone has ever done. We call it a finished work because there's nothing you can do to add to it. And there's nothing you can do to take away from it. It is finished and we might do well to rest in his work 
And out of that rest, I know that he will lead us into all the places, nooks and crannies in the world where he calls us to take up the work that he's already prepared so we can bless a hurting and broken world. Let's pray. Abba Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for ministering to us in such a way that it brings peace and wisdom and enlightenment. Lord, as we are on this journey of considering how we spend our time on this earth, both in active work and both in rest and Sabbath, God, we pray that you would continue to enlighten the eyes of our hearts. But for those here who um, have maybe just lived under the paradigm of where do I want to live? Where do I want to work? Where do I want to eat? Where do I want to play? Or I ask that today you would gift them a new paradigm. The first asking, Father, where would you want me to live? Father, where would you want me to work? Father, where would you want me to play? Father, where would you want me to eat? Father, how might I bless this waitress or this waiter? Lord, for those who are uh, struggling with maybe the guilt or shame that may come with the work you've called them to, I pray that you would speak into their identity this morning, that they are not what they do, that they are not what they achieve. They are not the letters before or after their name by your work on the cross, they are a beloved son or daughter of the Most High God.